This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Every family has its share of problems and issues and challenges, and military families are no different in that regard, except in one specific way, which is that a lot of those challenges are magnified. Plus, there are often a lot fewer resources available to military families than there are to civilian families. And I'm talking about basic kinds of things like adoption or dealing with a special needs child or health care. What happens when you leave the military? What happens when you get married to somebody who's in the military? How do you access benefits? And what happens if you get a divorce and you leave the military? Do you take any of those benefits with you? In this part of today's show, we're going to be speaking with a wonderful organization that deals with exactly those issues, all the kinds of basic everyday things that military families need an extra little bit of help with. Today's show is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union, which is proud to serve the Armed Forces veterans and their families. And if you're a member of the Armed Forces or Department of Defense, they would be proud to serve you, too. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Armin Brott. We'll start our discussion with the National Military Family Association when Positive Parenting continues right after this. My son Casey was a bright, fearless 20-year-old with a boundless future ahead of him. But in the blink of an eye... He was gone. While out riding a skateboard, Casey fell. He was not wearing a helmet. Our whole family wishes he was. It could have saved his life. I'm Captain Kevin Raffelli of the San Mateo Police Department. Parents, encourage your kids to strap on a helmet every time they jump on a bike, scooter, or skateboard. Think of my son Casey and use your head. Put a helmet on. It could save your life. A message from the Consumer Product Safety Commission. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Kelly Ruska, who's the Government Relations Director for the National Military Family Association, and their website is militaryfamily.org. Kelly, why don't you start us off with a bit of an overview of what the National Military Family Association does? Well, um, the National Military Family Association um, is an organization that helps support um, military families. And our primary focus is the currently serving. Um, we work with families. Um, we started in 1969, so next year we'll be 50 years old. And it started with a group of ladies around a kitchen table in Annapolis, Maryland, and they realized that their um, service member spouse, spouses were dying and there was nothing for the survivors. And so the ladies put on their hats and their gloves and their heels, and they went up to Capitol Hill, and they knocked on doors. And they talked and educated the members of Congress about what those spouses were experiencing and helped get past what we now have is know as the Survivor Benefit Program. So NMFA started as an organization that was looking at policies and how we could influence those policies for positive change for military families. Um, so it started off. It started off as a, a legislative kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
Yeah. And it, it's since branched out to, to be far more encompassing than that, though. Oh, yes, far more. But I will say, and uh, of course, government relations is, um, is my area of expertise, but um, all of our programs help inform our advocacy. So we learn an awful lot from what we hear from military families and military spouses and military kids, and we take that information and we educate um, members of Congress, of state legislatures, about the experience of the military family. So, um, you know, as I said, we started with our advocacy, um, and then we moved into our spouse scholarship program, which has grown significantly um, over the years. Um, knowing that military spouses, more and more military spouses, were looking to work outside the home. And um, with military moves, that was increasingly difficult. And so um, spouses, how to complete their degrees um, and find the money to complete their degrees um, was always a problem. And so we, um, we started our spouse scholarship program which now covers much more than um, just uh, an associate's or a bachelor's or a master's degree um, or um, funding for a, a doctorate or law degree. It funds certifications. Mm -hmm. um, it funds licensing transfers. It funds certificate programs. So, and increasingly we're finding military spouses need or careers are being licensed by states more and more and more. Right. And so every time a, a family moves, they have to get a new license or a recertification in each state. Although and some that of that, some of that's expensive. changing, though. I think there, there are some efforts with uh, the MSEP program, Military Spouse Employment Partnership, where they're trying to work on reducing some of those barriers. Well, yes, with the MSEP program and with the Department of Defense State Liaison Office, um, and we work with both MSEP and the DOD State Liaison Office to help change um, those barriers. There are also um, nonprofits, like for lawyers, there's a nonprofit that stood up called the MSJDN, the Military Spouse JD Network, that focuses solely on um, lawyers. But, you know, and we work with a host of others with the licensing. But, and recently in the um, fiscal year 18 National Defense Authorization Act, Congress passed a $500 um, reimbursement for military spouses who need to transfer their license because of a piece, uh, permanent change of station. Um, but unfortunately, that program hasn't been implemented yet. And so until then, military families are still moving, and yeah. military yeah. spouses still have to transfer their their licenses. You know, one thing I think that I found very interesting when I was looking at the, the spouse scholarships was that in all the talk about spouses and employment, we tend to overlook the many, many people who have their own businesses and how difficult those are to transfer from one place to another. Whether you need a, a certification or a license or not, it's it's your own your own business, and sure, that with uh, Amazon and and other types of online businesses, of course, you you can theoretically do things everywhere. But what if you have a a little shop or or something, and you've got uh, business funding as one of your scholarship 
opportunities yeah. as well. You talk about that a little bit. Sure. Um, you're right. We're seeing more and more spouses who are um, entrepreneurs building their own business, whether it is starting their own business from scratch or doing direct sales or franchises um, and starting their own nonprofits. So we do offer funding, typically up to $1,000, um, to help spouses build and move their businesses. And again, I think this is unusual in the military spouse space and one of the things that makes our scholarship program a little different. So, um, but, and again, as it, everything feeds back to our advocacy, um, our, we offer our scholarship uh, twice a year. We will uh, be, the applications for our scholarship will open um, in May and um, May through the end of June. And we ask questions on our scholarship applications um, that will help um, us when we go to write testimony and um, talk to members of Congress and the states. Yeah. You know, I, in looking over, and I highly recommend people should be visiting this site. It's militaryfamily.org. And because there's a good chance you don't know all of the services that the National Military Family Association has. And among them, and not that I would be suggesting this to anybody listening, but it happens periodically, is things having to do with with marriage and divorce and the, the many issues that there are. I mean, somebody coming into marrying into the military and the issues that somebody like that may have to face about how do you... How do you get an ID card? How do you? How can you get on into the commissaries? How do you get signed up for Tricare, uh, for health care? And and if you're on the other side of that, if you were divorcing somebody from the military, how do you transfer? How do you get health care benefits? I mean, all that sort of stuff. And and talk about the the services or the need and the services that you're providing to uh, newly forming and and deforming families. Yeah, unfortunately, fortunately, and unfortunately, our marriage and divorce. Um, section of our website is probably our most visited pages um, because, um, you know, again, we service members are entering the military every single day, and more and more of them have families. And so um, we offer um, some basic information for new military spouses um, as they try to navigate through it, this what sometimes can be very confusing maze of military life. And then unfortunately we do have our section on divorce um, that provides resources. Um, it links to the regulations for the recommendations for family support when a, um, when a couple separates. Um, it also offers information on a 2020-20 spouse or 2020-15 spouse and the benefits um, that are available to them. Why don't you explain that, though, those two numbers, 2020-20 and 2020-15, just for those who don't know. Okay. So um, a 2020-15, uh, the military provides benefits based on um, the uh, commissary exchange privileges, medical benefits based on the number of years you've been married, the number of years that the service member served and the number of years that they overlapped. So a 2020-20 spouse is a unmarried former spouse who has been married for at least 20 years, and that's from the date of marriage to the date of the divorce decree or annulment. 
and then the service member must have performed at least 20 years of service towards retirement, and then there has to be at least a 20-year overlap of marriage and military service. Okay. That's the 20-20-20. And 20-20-20 spouses qualify for medical benefits, um, commissary and exchange privileges, so they would retain their ID card. A 20-20-15, the same thing um, is 20 years of marriage, 20 years of credible service, and then there's at least 15-year overlap between marriage and military service. Um, these former spouses qualify for medical benefits for one year from the date of divorce, um, wow. and that's it. So the short version of this is that this is not something <laughs> that your average person can figure no. out on their own. They really need some help, and you guys would be the place to do if you're just joining us, I'm talking with Kelly Rusco, who's the Government Relations Director for the National Military Family Association, and their website, I always want to give these things out, is militaryfamily.org. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I want to talk to Kelly about one specific program that they have that helps out families with parents or children with special needs. I'm in almost every school bus in classroom. I go to school with your children. We say the Pledge of Allegiance together. You see me around the neighborhood, and you tell me that I'm a pretty good kid. Well, I'm one out of every five children in America, and I'm struggling with hunger. This problem is closer than you think. My teacher tells me we can grow up to be whatever we want. I want to grow up to be someone who doesn't go to bed hungry. There's enough food in this country to feed everybody. Please visit feedingamerica.org today and find your local food bank for ways to help. Every dollar you donate helps provide eight meals for kids like me, quietly struggling with hunger. Together, we are Feeding America. Brought to you by Feeding America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, I'm Armin Brott, and I'm talking with Kelly Rusko, who's the Government Relations Director of the National Military Family Association, and their website is, I just lost it. Oh, here it is, family, uh, militaryfamily.org. Uh, and I want to have you talk for, for the next little bit here about one particular program that I think does not get nearly enough um, play out there, I think, because a lot of people just don't know what's available, and it's called the Exceptional Family Member Program. And I think when I first started looking at it, I was looking at it in terms of parents having special needs kids, but you, just before we went on the air, you mentioned to me that it's not only that. So take us through the EFMP and what that's about. So EFMP stands for the Exceptional Family Member Program. And this is a program that all of the services have, um, and it is meant to provide support for families that have a special needs family member. And um, it is primarily an assignment coordination program. So what would happen is, let's say you had a child um, who was diagnosed with um, Down syndrome, and um, 
then the family would register into the Exceptional Family Member Program. And what the ESMP program would do is it flags the service member's service record so that as they move, they ensure that there are services for that family in each of their duty stations. Um, and primarily medical services, but they also want to ensure that there's um, educational services as well. So if there was a child with a learning disability or mm -hmm. something like that, not necessarily Down syndrome, which is a, nope. a separate thing altogether, but somebody who had dyslexia or ADHD or something that was um, had a, a diagnosis of some kind. Yes, yeah, so you could have like a medical condition or it could be an educational learning disability. Um, and um, they, what the services want to do is to make sure that there are services available for the families um, at each place they live. Um, we see this mostly, a lot of times you see it in play when um, uh, people are moving overseas. And in fact, right now our office is probably getting, um, well, we're the most, uh, majority of the phone calls we're receiving right now are from families who are moving overseas and having difficulty with the um, overseas screening process. Okay. What's the problem with that? Well, again, it is uh, EFMP is an assignment coordination program. So uh, there are cases where um, a location may not be a good match for a family. It could be a remote location that they don't have services readily available. And so um, it is you want to make sure, um, you know, so families are doing their overseas screening and then finding out that services aren't available for them and they're um, gaining installation. And especially with overseas, families want to move overseas, and so they want to have that experience. And unfortunately, we get a lot of phone calls when they don't um, receive um, a favorable um, recommendation on their overseas screening because services aren't available. Well, be let's before we get to that, let me just mention something, that in order to, to get these services or to be part of the EFMP, you have to fill out a DD-2792. Correct. Correct. That's, you are enrolling. You have to be enrolled in the Exceptional Family Member Program. Right. Okay. And that usually happens when you receive a diagnosis or when um, a learning disability is identified. Now, we should also mention, um, and as I mentioned to you prior to the um, our prior to going on air, is that EFMP is not just for children. Mm -hmm. It is also for adults. So if service members have a spouse um, who could have been um, in, a, I've just recently, a spouse who was in an accident um, and needed some um, additional medical services. And so, um, you know, they may not need the educational services offered by EFMP, but they would need the medical so adults as well as children can be yeah. enrolled in EFMP. So it's really important to be proactive about getting that form filled out because if you don't have oh, yeah. that, you're not going to get anything. Exactly. And you want to make sure that you're going to a place that can support um, you and your family. Right. Well, okay, so now let's get back to what you were talking about, about the calls that you're getting from people uh, shipping out overseas. So are you just out of luck 
if there are no services available, or it, does the program provide for you to get off base? It just depends. Uh, resources. It depends on where the location is. So there are some remote locations where the orders may be changed to be unaccompanied for a shorter period of time if the family can't accompany them. Um, or this, um, the services may change the orders. Um, or they, it could be, you know, they've identified the services may not be available on the installation, but they're available in the community. So, you know, each of the services in the installations look at what they can and cannot provide. Um, and then they work with the assignment officers or detailers to make sure that that location is a good fit for the family. Now, on your website, you mentioned that DOD policies allows but does not require the services to provide family support services. Are there specific branches? I mean, somebody who may be listening, who's th maybe thinking about joining, uh, but would like to hasn't settled on a service yet, a particular branch of service. Are there branches that, that have better services than others? Um, I, you know, I think all the services pretty much provide the, the same level of services, but like anything, it, sometimes it varies from installation to installation. There are um, EFMP offices that really go above and beyond to help um, and provide information for families. But I would also encourage families to contact Military OneSource. And so Military OneSource is the military's um, employee assistance program. And Military OneSource has um, special needs coordinators, and they can do special needs consultations. And so they can also be helpful um, if you're moving, um, especially within the United States, in identifying um, resources around um, the installation where you live or are moving. Mm -hmm. And that's militaryonesource.mil for those who need that. Yeah, and there, there's, there's a lot of other stuff. So what else do we need to know about the uh, exceptional family member programs? Well, the, um, how you enroll differs um, from service to service. Um, in the Air Force, um, you'll find more of the enrollment attached to the military treatment facilities, whereas with the other services, um, they're, co they're located with the family support services. Um, the... Uh, um, and there are really some wonderful, um, don't be afraid, especially to reach out to people in your community um, and ask them about um, resources in your local area. Um, in addition, you know, part of the family support function of the EFMP office um, is to connect you with resources in your community. And so, um, you know, especially if you're a parent um, whose child has just been diagnosed with something, um, learning about that, um, they can help connect you with those organizations that help, can help you, um, you know, learn about the diagnoses and um, the different treatment plans and, um, and different resources available, especially in the schools for children. 
Kelly Ruska is the Government Relations Director for the National Military Family Association, and their website, again, is militaryfamily.org. Kelly, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Armin. Really appreciate it. Driving has a rhythm all its own. Don't wreck it with the text. Before you get behind the wheel, silence your phone. Or better yet, designate a texter. For more text-free driving tips, visit StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for a Parents at Play segment. If you're looking to spend some quality time in the Big Apple with your family, here are some great places to visit while you're there. Legoland Discovery Center. Legos are fun for kids and adults of all ages, and there is no better place to play with them than the Legoland Discovery Center. The adventure begins with a kiddie version of the history of those little plastic bricks and how they're made. After that, it's time to get physical. The first ride, one that takes you into the main area, is a sit-down guided laser shooting tour where you save the castle by defeating tons of baddies. To celebrate your victory, you head into a mini-brick version of New York City and the Legoland area. Push buttons for lights and sounds as well as mini-animations. The details are pretty amazing, and the spoofs will keep everyone giggling. Fans will find quite a few Easter eggs as they walk around the town. There's also a magic couch ride where you can jaunt around on a flying couch. Really, you move up and down by pedaling and it goes around in a circle. If you're feeling a little lower energy, check out the racing course where you build your own race car to pit against everyone else. And don't miss the 4D movie, a must for all Lego movie fans. Of course, there are tons of master classes to take. Lego to build, you can take your creations with you for a fee if you want. And obstacle courses to try out. Legoland Discovery Center of Westchester is located at 39 Fitzgerald Street in Yonkers, New York. The Statue of Liberty. No visit to New York City would be complete without visiting Lady Liberty. The National Park Service provides ferry and related services to and from the Statue of Liberty National Monument and Ellis Island via statue cruises. You can get there from either Battery Park in Lower Manhattan or Liberty State Park in Jersey City, New Jersey. Cruises begin at 8.30 a.m. with the last boat departing Battery Park and Liberty State Park at 3.30 p.m. daily, and the last boat from the Statue and Ellis Island departs at about 4.30. Tickets to the Crown and Pedestal can be booked at the same time, or you can visit just the grounds of the Statue. Whether you're an American or a foreign tourist, seeing the statue in Ellis Island is both incredibly moving and educational. We highly recommend that you leave the entire day for your visit, as it's not something to rush through. You can purchase tickets to the Statue of Liberty and Ellis Island online at statuecruises.com by visiting the Statue Cruises ticket office inside Castle Clinton at Battery Island or by calling one eight seven seven lady ticks T-I-X. Madison Square Garden. <clears throat> ah, MSG, a true New York City institution where you can see all sorts of shows and sporting events, no matter your age or preferences. There's definitely something for everyone. 
We recently saw WWE's Road to WrestleMania. The show was fast-paced and exciting, and the crowd was incredible. Not a big wrestling fan? Hey, no problem. There's a huge variety of shows to choose from. Rock shows like Pink or Billy Joel. Comedy acts like Kevin Hart. Little kid favorites like Sesame Street Live or Peppa Pig Live. And tons of sporting events like the New York Knicks, UFC, and Monster Jam. You can find out a lot more at garden-ny.com. You can get more reviews of toys and games and activities and all sorts of other great stuff to do with your family at our website, parentsatplay.com. We'll be back next week with another brand new show for you, but don't go anywhere yet because there's a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brott, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. You must be your fairy godmother. Yes. It doesn't take a fairy godmother to tell you that the right fit means everything. Good heavens, child. You can't go in that. Children under four foot nine need to be in a booster seat because they aren't ready for adult safety belts alone. Many parents miss the important step of booster seats. Maybe you better explain things to him. Booster seats raise your child up so that a safety belt designed for adults will fit and protect them properly. Oh. That does make a difference. Remember that four foot nine is the magic number. And get your little pumpkin there safely <laughs> in a booster seat. Hop in, my dear. Oh, thank you. And like Cinderella, you can live happily ever after. It's like a dream. A wonderful dream come true. For more information, visit boosterseat.gov. This has been a message from the U.S. Department of Transportation and the Ad Council. Get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Our K-12 school system is an artificial product of market forces. It isn't a good fit for all or even most students. It prioritizes a single way of understanding the world over all others. It pushes children into a rigid set of grades with little regard for individual maturity and slaps the word disability all over differences in learning styles. Caught in this system, far too many young learners end up discouraged, disconnected, and unhappy. And when they struggle... Schools pressure parents with overwhelming force into fixing their children rather than questioning the system. In this part of today's show, we're going to be turning conventional wisdom on its head with a guest who believes that when a serious problem arises at school, the fault is actually more likely to lie with the school or the education system itself than with the child. It's a little bit of a controversial idea, but it's one that comes not only from experience raising four children, but also from more than 20 years of educational consulting and university teaching. I'm Armin Brunt. We'll start talking about how you can take control of your child's K-12 experience and learn to flex the system so it fits your child and not the other way around when Positive Parenting continues right after this. 
There once was a boy wizard whose name was Larry Smarter. Larry, why weren't you in Professor Dinky Doodle's mythical creature classification class? Well, I'm taking Algebra 2 in a foreign language. Oh, so you can talk to unicorns? Huh, exactly. Unless they're French. Larry wanted to go to college, so he visited knowhowtogo.org to find the classes he really needed. Getting into college doesn't happen magically. Learn more at knowhowtogo.org. Brought to you by the American Council on Education, Lumina Foundation for Education, and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Susan Wise-Bauer, who's the author of Rethinking School, How to Take Charge of Your Child's Education. Susan, thanks for joining us. Thank you. What is it about school that needs to be rethought? I know it's a, it's a controversial topic, <laughs> and, and it depends on whether you're a supporter of teachers' unions or not, and it, it, it's, it gets to be really shrill after a while when you start talking about these things. But what do you think generally needs to be rethought here? Well, uh, certainly there are, there are different aspects of our K-12 education that um, we will continue to fight over. But um, my contention is that the system itself is a bad match for many of the students that are in it. It has nothing to do with the competency of the teachers. It has nothing to do with the funding of the schools necessarily. It has to do with the fact that the way we do K-12 education is artificial, um, highly structured, and uh, when you shoehorn a bunch of living creatures into an inflexible system, it's simply not going to work for some of them. Well, I, I, I'm just to take a devil's advocate position. I think you'd say, you know, okay, look, there's 30 kids in a class, and we've got one teacher, maybe a teacher's aide. How can we possibly mm -hmm. have something that is that allows for individualized approaches for every child in there? We we would never be able to get through any kind of curriculum. You're absolutely right. That is what is artificial about the system. It's the fact that we have committed ourselves to the system in which you do have 30 kids, same age, one classroom, one teacher at the front. It's a system we adopted from 19th century Prussia. Uh, there's no particularly um, compelling pedagogical reason to do school the way that we do. We have a system that resists any sort of individualization, and uh, part of what I wanted to do in the book was to say to parents, look, there's one teacher, there's 30 kids. If you want individualization, you're going to have to take charge of that yourself. And what does that mean? Well, it can mean any number of things. Um, I, I give parents a lot of sort of diagnostic exercises to figure out how their kids learn, what their maturity level is, what their learning strengths and needs are. And then I, I try to offer parents a series of strategies um, to work within the school system to adapt uh, work to their kids' individual needs, whether that is um, supplementing uh, at home, whether it's asking for a child to be moved to in just one subject to another grade, whether that is working with the teacher to provide um, a different style of education that the parent helps with. There are any number of options out there for parents, but I think uh, most parents aren't even aware that they exist. No, I don't think you're—I think that's right. Yeah, kids are—parents are certainly not available or, or aware that these things exist, and, and the kids mm -hmm. certainly don't know. Uh, do they exist, I guess, is one of the questions. I mean, I could, I could see if you had to move a child out for math, for example, to be in a, in a different class, a higher class or a lower class, that would— 
assume or require that the other math class is happening at the same time as the first math class because otherwise you could have a kid who goes out during math and could end up missing social studies or something, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, you'd have yeah. to have an even more structured system. Well, some, some schools are flexible enough to um, allow parents to do this, others are not. But what I have discovered um, is that drawing on a lot of the tools and resources that have been developed for home educators can help parents who don't intend to homeschool quite a lot. There are a number, for example, stick with our math example, of um, customizable individual online math courses um, that can be fitted to a child's particular challenges or needs or, or gifts. And there are many teachers who, if you approach them and say, look, my kid is either struggling or is ahead here, I would like you to allow them to pull out in math and work on this individualized program here. Um, I will check up behind it. I will test. I will bring you the results so that you can see what the child is doing. These sorts of resources are used by home educators all the time, but there's no reason why they have to be just for home educators. There's no reason why they can't help parents individualize instruction for a kid who is still in a traditional classroom. Okay. And you mentioned about maturity being, I think that's certainly one of the, the biggest issues is that whether yeah. a child is mature enough. And you have in the book some questions or some diagnostics. Tell us about how you can assess your child's maturity. I mean, it seems like something that we, we all ought to know, but I think we probably don't know everything that we yeah. ought to. Well, it, it seems so natural to us that, you know, a first grader is six and a second grader is seven and a third grader is eight. And that, you know, that assumes that children develop evenly, which they don't. Different children mature at different rates. One of the things can be most frustrating is that one child can be uh, have a physical maturity but um, an emotional immaturity or the other way around. So, you know, I sort of start with the basics, which is forget about grade. Look at your kid. Um, is he big or small for his age? Is she coordinated or does she struggle with, you know, things like buttons and zippers? These are, these are keys to physical maturity. When the child is frustrated, do they cry or do they try to figure out how to solve uh, a problem? That has to do with emotional maturity. Um, when a child is asked to do abstract critical thinking, um, do they get this deer-in-the-headlights look that says, ah, I, I just can't even figure out what the question is, let alone what the answer is, or do they show a willingness to grapple with it? That's a key to, uh, to intellectual maturity. These things have to do with, um, I like to say, how many times the earth has gone around the sun. You can't force a child to mature more quickly. Right. That makes sense. Right. Yep. So you start with this. And, um, and if, you're, uh, if your observations of your child are telling you that they are physically, emotionally, intellectually less mature than other children in the grade, you have to be willing to, um, and parents are really reluctant to do this, but you have to be willing to go to a school and say, look, uh, my kid needs a little more time to mature. Uh, let's talk about repeating a grade. Let's talk about repeating a subject. Let's talk about pulling out. Let's, let's look for some other solution. There's not much gain when you put an immature child in a situation that requires greater maturity in order for them to flourish. Um, they're going to uh, gain a sense of themselves as not as good as everyone else, as mm -hmm. constantly struggling, constantly failing. And uh, that can really set kids up for a lifetime of academic struggle. All right. I, I want to take a step back here because I, I do want to get into some, a lot more of the specifics that you talk about in the book and, and some of the great suggestions that you have. But 
just can can we go up to the the ten thousand foot or the thirty thousand foot view? What is the result of the of the school system the way that it's set up right now? How is it not serving us? I mean, so, so yes, kids are you know some kids are getting lost a little bit and some kids are not making it, but overall, it seems like people get through everything and they generally go on to have lives where they can support themselves. Which is setting the bar low, but, uh, you know. That is setting the bar low. I'd like to set it a little higher for our kids. Um, I think you're right. Most most people survive school. But you get any group of, say, oh, 20 adults together and really start to ask them about their school experience. That experience has affected the way they think of themselves, their concept of their own abilities. And I guarantee you 15 out of the 20 are going to tell you a story of being made to feel inadequate, of struggle, of feeling like they didn't quite fit in and couldn't quite figure it out. Um, the, the <laughs> getting Surviving it and then supporting yourself is, um, yeah, I'm not even going to say low bar. That's like a line on the ground. <laughs> um, we, we ought to be doing a lot better than that with our kids. Um, okay, so, so the... So, the... But let me... Let me can okay. I go up even further, yeah. even like like forty thousand feet. Okay. Um, I think it's really important for us to remember that the way our school system has developed, it has one goal in mind, and that is to get kids into college. And if we're going to start interrogating our school system, one of the parts of that needs to be is getting through and surviving and getting a good job. How important is college for all students to that goal? Um, I think that this is something which is very much in flux. The value of a college degree is changing. The cost of a college degree is skyrocketing. And uh, one of the things that keeps kids in this K-12 system when, in fact, they should be doing something else is parental fear that if they don't go to college, they won't be able to get a good job. Um, we, we've got to uh, take a closer look at that assumption as well. Well, about whether they need to go to college at all. In, in some Absolutely. cases, I mean, there you know, there's many other places, and I want to talk to you about this. We've got a, a break coming up in just a second, but I want to talk to you a little bit about the the idea of apprenticeship programs mm-hmm. and you know, whether whether kids need to be in college in the first place, and also Absolutely. if anybody is doing it right and where there's a model for it. Uh, if you're just joining us, talking with Susan Wise Bauer, who's the author of Rethinking School, How to Take Charge of Your Child's Education. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Susan about a lot of the issues that we've been just hinting at so far. I'm Armin Broad, and you're listening to Positive Parenting. Steven. Who said that? Me, down here. <gasps> what are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. Well, uh, what are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. Don't you remember me? Don't you know that we miss you? Miss me? Who misses me? You know, all your friends in the forest. The trees, the pond, that little fort that you made out of branches. We all miss you. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. Oh, I guess that makes sense. This forest is not that far away. Have an adventure today. I'm sure your mom would take you. You're right. I should get out. I want to have fun. Plant puddles, catch frogs, and climb trees. Hey, Mom! Yeah, hon? <gasps> Stephen! What is that in your hand? It's my sense of adventure, Mom. It's telling me we need to get out of the house and have some fun in nature today. Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. 
Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. you just joining us, talking with Susan Weisbauer, who's the author of Rethinking School, How to Take Charge of Your Child's Education. Uh, just talk, just before the, the break, mentioned this about uh, whether kids need to be in college, and I think there's a general acceptance out there, certainly among a lot of parents who are, are thinking a little bit more clearly and not, getting, not, not allowing themselves to be pushed along by the things that they think they should be doing, but that not everybody belongs in college, that apprenticeships programs would be nice, and, and those exist in other countries. Are there models, though, for the type of pre-college education that you're talking about that's more customized to individual children and not quite so rigid and Prussian? Yeah. Well, I, I think that I think that um, multi-age classrooms, the sort of things that you see in many uh, Montessori schools, for example, are definitely a step uh, in the right direction. Um, not having kids walking in lockstep uh, with their grade according to their chronological age. So I, I think there's some good work being done in, in many Montessori schools, some Waldorf schools. What you don't tend to see as much is that pattern um, uh, persisting through high school. I think there are a fair number of schools that are doing pretty good, innovative work on the early childhood level, but by the time you get into high school, um, that you know that college monster is sort of lurking at the end of the, that four-year passage, and uh, the willingness to be flexible and to allow kids to take a different path seems to um, it seems to be much harder to find. That had certainly been our experience with our own children. So it, it's happening a little bit before high school, and then high school, they're going into high gear in, as far as prepping kids for college. Yes, absolutely, which is great if that's what a kid should be doing. Um, but, I, I, you know, you said it at the, at the top of, of this segment that more parents were beginning to question that, the, the necessity of a college degree. I, I wish I saw more parents doing that. I don't see a lot of it. I um, I talk to a lot of parents who basically say, you know what, my kid hates school, my kid has always hated school, what do I have to do to get him into a good college? Um, and, and I say to myself, you need to listen to the first part of that sentence before you say the rest of it. Um, the fear of what will happen to a kid who doesn't have a college degree looms large for many parents, and I, I find them not questioning that fear as clearly as they ought. Well, I mean, I, I got to say, I, I think that's that's a tough nut there because yes. it's it requires some buy-in from employers to, and I actually it just worked on a book with a guy. We were talking about diversity and how diversity is more than just about race and gender and other things. That it it can be about a level of education, and that mm -hmm. sometimes you need somebody who doesn't have a college education to come in who's got real world world experience. But so. What are we going to do for for kids who hate school and and it's hard for them to learn? But but we all know that kids. I mean, even plumbers and carpenters have to learn about technology these days. I mean, there there are things that you're going to have to sit down in a classroom someplace. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I would not deny that. But you know, if you're going to be a plumber or electrician, you don't actually have to do um, you know three years of American literature uh, and True learn enough. how to analyze poetry. So. So I'm not, I am not against um, classroom education in the slightest, but I am against this sort of one-size-fits-all, which has been designed for the purpose of appealing to the college admissions officers who read applications for four-year liberal arts colleges. We, we've gotten very, very focused on that particular route. Um, 
And, you know, I agree with you also when I say this is a, you say this is a tough nut to crack. I actually think the buy-in from employers is not as big a problem. Uh, I can't, I mean, I've met so many people who have high-ranking jobs in tech. I did a book tour in Seattle recently and met an astounding number of people in high technical positions at, you know, a software firms who didn't have a college degree. Um, but I think that the perception that you need a college degree is extremely widespread. I, I do think we're going to be very soon at a tipping point with this because although many parents still feel like, okay, got to get a four-year degree, it's getting to where you can't really even afford the four-year degree anymore. So um, I think there are a combination of forces here that are going to be pushing us away from the acceptance of that four-year degree as the norm. And what do you think we ought to be doing instead? Uh, well, I think we ought to be de developing uh, different training paths uh, for students to develop deep specialties in things that they enjoy, are good at, are passionate about. Um, and I'm, and not, not just, I mean, I guess things would sort of tend to say, you know, plumbers and electricians, because we, those are two very obvious routes where you can do things not have to have a four-year degree, and still, you know, find very good work. But in many different fields, um, you know, not just, not just the sort of, um, you know, construction arts, but, you know, in uh, software programming, for example, you really don't need a four-year liberal arts degree um, to, no, to you be don't. a you good don't. programmer. So, so we need to start thinking more clearly about how we're preparing our kids for adulthood. I, well, mean, I, I think saddling them with one hundred twenty thousand dollars in debt is not a good start. No, not at all. I mean, I think that there there is a certain element of panic as we keep hearing about how America is falling behind in math and in science, and we don't have enough engineers, and we have to bring people in from overseas. And right. and you know, when parents hear that, they immediately want to sign their kid up for a coding class. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's probably the correct path for some kids. Uh, you know, this takes, for parents, it takes stepping back from the panic and looking clearly at the kid yeah. and thinking not what job can this kid possibly get, but how can this kid blossom into the thing that he or she is best designed to be? Um, that requires not panicking and not listening to the fear and looking directly at the kid instead. Well, but it also requires a certain element of luck, I think, in a lot of cases. I mean, you probably, you're talking about 15 out of 20 uh, people who would, would say that they had some problems in school. I, I would bet right. you'd find 19 out of 20 who at one point would be able to say, you know, I had a teacher who changed the direction that I took or uh -huh. who, who made, you know, made me just absolutely fascinated about, by something I wasn't interested in before, and that became my, my life direction. So, you know, that kind yeah. of thing you can't do if you're homeschooling necessarily. Actually, part of part of the and, and again, I'm not actually recommending homeschooling necessarily. Well, I, I didn't say you were. I just saying right? you know, just using right. that as an extreme example. Um, th no, I think I think that what parents need to do is to um, put on a concentrated, well-designed search for mentors. There are so many people out there who have fascinating jobs who could take a kid to work, describe the work to the kid. Um, demonstrate, get, give them a little bit of a window, you know, into what this kind of life, what this kind of might be. That's actually something you don't get in school. And that is something that parents with a little bit of energy, a little bit of ingenuity, a little bit of tact, a little bit of charm 
uh, could do a much better job of introducing kids to mentors who could act that part, that, you know, that inspirational part that we sort of tend to attach to classroom teachers. Classroom teachers are not the only adults who can offer that to a kid. All right. We've got about a minute or two left. Uh, what, do you, what do you want parents to, to walk away from with this? <laughs> I want them to walk away from the fear. Um, one of the things I say when I talk to parents is that looking back, I, I, have, I have four children, um, three are adults now. I've got one left at, uh, right at the end of high school. Every decision I made out of fear of what might happen in the future as opposed to careful concern for the child turned out to be a regrettable decision. So I think, um, you know, when you're looking at your kid and you're looking at how your kid is doing in school, if you can get away from the fear that everything is going to fall apart if the kid doesn't get an A in pre-algebra this year, it's going to be the beginning of the downward slide, um, then it's a lot easier to make good decisions. Yeah, yeah. And and I think you can't leave everything up to the kids, though. I mean, I, you did, you did oh, mention... Oh, absolutely not. You, you, know, you certainly you mentioned that you want to... It starts with knowing your child, but... There are, for better or worse, there are a lot of kids out there who just don't know what they want to do. Absolutely, and that, that's why the parents have to rethink school. I mean, this book is directed not at kids. It's directed at parents. Um, and, you know, the premise is you know your kid better than anyone else. You are better equipped to help guide and mentor them than that teacher who's got 29 other kids in the classroom. Exactly. And and when when do you think this starts? I mean, if you if somebody's listening who's got a middle schooler, is it possible to to change things, or is it too late for that child? It's never too late for that child. I, this starts when you look at your kid and think, this kid is not okay. This kid is not fitting. This kid is stressed. This kid hates everything that they're doing in school. That's the time to start making a change, no matter what age the child is. Susan Weisbauer is the author of Rethinking School, How to Take Charge of Your Child's Education. Susan, thanks for joining us. Thank you. I've enjoyed talking to you. And before we go, a special shout-out to the folks at Navy Federal Credit Union for supporting today's show. They proudly serve the Armed Forces, Department of Defense, veterans, and their families. Federally insured by NCUA. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.